Amen. He is worthy of all. You can go and have a seat. And Harvest Kids, you can go ahead and head into the fellowship hall for your time with uh, Mr. Don and Miss Penny this morning. Thanks for being in here with us, guys. Uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, my name is Andrew Watkins. I have the, the privilege of serving as associate pastor here at Harvest. And uh, whether you're joining us in person this morning or you're tuning in online, we are uh, truly, as Pastor Dan said, so thankful to have you spending uh, part of your Sunday with us uh, this morning. We're going to go ahead and get into God's Word together this morning. So if you would, go ahead and grab your Bibles or your phones or, or whatever it is that you tend to use to get your eyes on God's Word. And would you meet me uh, in John chapter 5 this morning? Me in John 5, verses 30 through 47 this morning, we're continuing our series through the Gospel of John called Come and See, and even if you don't have a Bible with you, I would still really encourage you this morning, uh, as always, to uh, find a way to, to follow along, to look at God's Word this morning. There's a couple ways that you could do that. Uh, you could, first of all, just pull out a phone and Google John 5 ESV, and it'll pop right up for you. Or we've got some Bibles in the back of the room that you could uh, make use of, and if you don't have one at all, we would love for you to just take that as our gift to you, or uh, I'm sure that there is someone sitting near you who would be more than happy and willing uh, to share God's word with you this morning. Uh, but John chapter 5 this morning, and I want us to, uh, even if you're still turning there, I want us to get the, the full context of what we're going to look at this morning. And so even if you're still turning there, I want us to, to go ahead and read the entire passage this morning so that we get the, get the context. Jesus is continuing his monologue that he started uh, last week in verse 18 that we looked at last week, and this is really kind of part two of that monologue. And so I want us to to see what he's talking about as he has, uh, he's ruffled a few feathers uh, a couple weeks ago, to say the least, with the religious leaders, and then he went into this monologue, and then starting in John chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus continues and he says this, he says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, that's John, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John." For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray before we jump in. Father, again, you are worthy of it all this morning. Jesus, our prayer is that you would be big this morning. That as we look at your words in John chapter 5, that you would be magnified among us. 
That as we turn to your word, as uh, 2 Timothy says, it is uh, inerrant and inspired by your Holy Spirit. It's profitable for doctrine and reproof and training in righteousness. So we ask, uh, God, by your Holy Spirit, would you be present in this room this morning? Would you be softening our hearts? Would you be working among us to uh, challenge us, to equip us, ultimately to make us look more like Jesus and, and call us to follow him in every area of our lives? It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I want to begin this morning by introducing you to three people. Uh, these are real people. Uh, these are real stories about these people, though uh, their names, for, for various reasons, have never actually been publicly re- revealed. So, so we'll make up some names. We'll, we'll call the first one BJ. Uh, BJ was a fisherman in the Philippines. He was out fishing one day near Palawan Island, just like he was pretty much most days when a storm blew in. And as the storm blew in, he, to be safe, he, he dropped his anchor uh, so that he wouldn't get pulled out into, into the sea by the current. But then when the storm was over and it was time to, to move along, he tried to pull up his anchor and he, he realized that it was, it was stuck. He was caught on a, a giant clam. And so to, to get free, he, he dove down in and he, he swam down to the bottom and, and inside that clam that his anchor was stuck on, he found a giant pearl that was about one foot wide by about two feet long and, and, and weighing about 75 pounds. Now, BJ was a fisherman and not a gemologist, so he, he didn't really know what he had there, but he thought it was cool. And so he, he somehow lugged this thing up into his boat and he, he took it home and he, he put it under his bed and he just kept it there as, as a good luck charm. As it turns out, BJ had unnecessarily kept living in poverty for about 10 years after this because one day he showed his aunt and she said, you need to go get that checked out. And it, as it turns out, that, that pearl was worth about $100 million. He had no idea. It was, it was right there all along. And next there's Jim. Jim was a man. He lived in Philadelphia. And one Saturday morning, Jim was at a flea market and he, he decided to splurge and buy a painting for $4. The truth is that Jim didn't even like this painting really at all. It was about the frame. He liked the frame and he thought, you know what, I'll, I'll buy it. I'll take it home. And maybe one day I'll do something with that frame sat in his garage and then that one day did come. He, he went and he went out to the garage and he, he ripped the painting out of the frame and, and on, the, on the back of the painting that was in that frame, he found what appeared to be a copy of the Declaration of Independence. Now, for sure, it's not real, right? Of course, it's not real, but, but Jim decided to, to keep it around and more out of amusement than anything else. He'd, he'd pull it out at parties and just have it. It was just a thing that was there and then one day a friend said, hey, you should, you should probably go check that out. And uh, as it turns out, it was a near-perfect first printing copy of the Declaration of Independence. It was real, and, and once Jim realized what he had right in front of him all along, he, he sold it for what would today be around $5.5 million. Then there's Sue. Sue was at a garage sale in New York one day, and she saw a, a little bowl that she thought was cute. She didn't know what she was going to do with it, but she figured she'd find some use for it around the house at some point, so, so she bought it for a whole $3.00. As it turns out, that $3 bowl was actually a thousand-year-old Chinese relic worth around $2.2 million. But for years, until she realized what she had, all that, all that bowl was to her was a, was a candy dish, something to sit on the mantle, something to put your keys in because it just, it just needed some purpose. The lesson that we learn from the stories of BJ, Jim, and Sue is not that you can find priceless treasures in unexpected places, though, though that is for sure true. The lesson is that it's always important to understand the value of what's in front of you. 
See, it's entirely possible to have a a life-changing opportunity right in front of you and have no idea whatsoever. And that's the situation that the Jewish leaders in in, uh, John chapter five find themselves in with Jesus standing right in front of them. Even though it should have been abundantly clear to them by this point in the Gospel of John who he was, they still didn't recognize him for who he really was and they still had no idea what he could really do to change their lives. Maybe that's you this morning. Jesus is right in front of you. The opportunity is there. You think you know him, but because you haven't seen him clearly for who he really is, you have no idea what he's really worth and what he can really literally do to change your life. And so like BJ in his pearl, you kind of just, you keep Jesus around as a good luck charm under the bed. You pull him out when you need him. Or maybe like Jim and his copy of the Declaration of Independence, you just bring Jesus out for show and tell every now and then. Maybe on Sundays, something to, something to do, something to have some fun with. Or like Sue and her million dollar bowl, you only keep Jesus around for whatever purpose serves you in the moment and the rest of the time he kind of just gathers dust over on the mantle somewhere. Friends, as we look at this text this morning, my plea to you, my, my plea to all of us this morning is this, simply this, don't miss Jesus. In fact, if you're taking notes this morning, that's part of our big idea this morning, our one sentence overarching theme of the passage that'll, that'll tie it together for us. Our big idea this morning is this, that Jesus' deity is confirmed, so don't miss Jesus. Again, Jesus' deity is confirmed, so don't miss Jesus. And as we look at John chapter five this morning, I just wanna offer two right responses to the words of Jesus that we see right here. And here's the first, the first right response to what Jesus is saying here is to believe God's witnesses about Jesus. To believe God's witnesses about Jesus. It was called the trial of the century for a reason. And whether they thought OJ did or didn't do it, all eyes were on that LA courthouse to see what would happen in his trial. The case against him was pretty strong. The evidence seemed to be pointing in one direction, but the problem was with one of the witnesses. Detective Mark Furman of the Los Angeles Police Department had a a questionable past, to say the least. That's putting it very politely. To the point where the defense team was able to discredit him, both in the eyes of the jury and the public. They, They impeached the witness, as it's called. Detective Furman could not be trusted, and then people have now been left questioning the verdict of that trial for almost 30 years now. And so far in the Gospel of John, Jesus has made some pretty bold claims about himself. Back in chapter four, uh, when the woman of the well talked about the Messiah who was to come, Jesus looked at her and he said, he's here. You're looking at him. Then in the passage we looked at last week in verse 18, Jesus claims to be equal with God and then throughout the passage he claims to have the ability to, to give life and to execute judgment Bold claims for sure. And so then the question for us is then, uh, can Jesus back up these claims? Are they, are they true, or to use the legal terminology, are they true beyond a reasonable doubt? So the beginning of the passage we just read, after essentially repeating part of what he had said back in verse 30, and then, and then reaffirming that he's on a mission from God the Father, in verse 31, in, in talking about the bold claims about who he is, Jesus essentially says, but don't take my word for it. Like, if I just make a bunch of claims about myself, it's not worth much. And so instead of making just claims about himself and in light of what Deuteronomy says, that that one witness is not enough and and a matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses, Jesus is going to call three witnesses to take the stand. 
He's going to call God's witnesses, unimpeachable witnesses to testify about who he is so that we and the people that he's talking to here would believe Jesus. He wants us to come and see. That's, our, that's, that's the title of our sermon series. He wants us to come and see, so, so let's go and look. Here's the first witness that Jesus calls to the stand. Witness number one, John the Baptist points to Jesus. John the Baptist points to Jesus. If you still have your copy of God's word open, look back with me at verses 32 through 35. Here's what Jesus says. He says, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, again, that's John, was a, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. When we first met John back in chapter one of the gospel of John, different John, but even before then, he was already doing what he always did, and that's point to Jesus. In Luke one, even as John was in Elizabeth's womb and Jesus was in Mary's womb, John leapt for joy when Jesus showed up. In a way, John was already pointing to Jesus in utero. And then, then in John chapter one, as John began his ministry, John 1, 6 says that there was a man who was sent from God. Again, this is, this is God's witness. There was a man who was sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Again, John was sent by God to point to Jesus. He's God's witness, number one. Then later in John chapter one, we we see it happening. We see John pointing to Jesus to confirm his deity. As John's ministry was picking up, these religious leaders that are now questioning Jesus went out to the wilderness to to question John. And, And when he got there, the first words out of John's mouth, as they asked him, who are you, was I am not the Christ. Like that's the first thing John says, like let's just get this straight, I'm not him. I am not the Messiah, don't get any wrong ideas here. I'm just the one who is here to to point to the Messiah. I'm just a road sign to the Messiah. Then the next day Jesus showed up out in the wilderness where John was and and then John cried out, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Or in modern terms, uh, John says, he's him. Him with like the ultimate capital H. John was pointing to Jesus. Later in John 3, as the crowds were shifting from John to Jesus, uh, John's disciples started pointing that out and be like, hey, John, you're not as popular as you used to be. Like everybody's over there following Jesus. Like, how do you you feel about that, John? And and John 3, 28, he looks his followers in the eyes and said, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. Like you guys heard me say it, right? Like I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He must increase, but I must decrease. John was pointing to Jesus to confirm his deity. And rightly so. John goes on to, to, to expound upon that. He says, he who comes from above is above all. That's Jesus. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. That's me. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God sent, that's Jesus again, utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. 
The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Again, John was pointing to Jesus over and over and over again. He testified to his deity. That's his message. That's what he was sent by God to do. Now back in John chapter five, Jesus looks at these people who had at least at one point respected John to some degree he says, you know, John, John was telling the truth about me. Like, you guys realize that, right? He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice in his light, but only for a while. In other words, John, Jesus is basically telling these people, like, yeah, you were all about it when it was fun, right? Like, it was okay when you went out to the wilderness and things were happening. John was having these rallies. That was cool. You were, you were all about that. It was the place to be. You were all about that stuff. Till he started pointing to me. Then you went missing in action. You dropped off. You, you weren't about that part of it. Why? Because people and p- programs at church will always be less threatening to us than coming face to face with who Jesus is and being called to repentance and calling to submit ourselves to him. Like rallies and crowds are way easier than repentance and actually following Jesus. Like let's be clear here. The primary application for us is for sure to believe John's witness about Jesus. But here's a secondary application for us. Listen when people point you to Jesus. Listen when people point you to Jesus. Like I've seen it too many times. People are happy to hang around church and small group and religious things for, for the practical tips and tricks about how to have a better marriage, how to make their kids turn out okay, how to, how to just get ahead in life so things start going well for you. But then the moment that someone starts pointing them to Jesus, calling them to repentance and, and saying, look, this is who Jesus really is. This is what he's done. This is how he can change your life. The, the reaction a lot of times ends up being like, stop being so weird. Like just don't. Don't, don't be like that. Just, just give me the stuff to do. I'm fine. But stop being so weird. And, and then they're gone. Because it wasn't Jesus they were after all along in the first place. It was themselves. So listen when people point you to Jesus. That's what John was doing. John was pointing to as, as God's witness to confirm his deity. And then as John steps down from the witness stand, uh, Jesus calls witness number two. Witness number two is Jesus' miracles prove Jesus. That Jesus' miracles prove Jesus. Look at verse 36. Jesus goes on in verse 36 to say, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I am doing bear witness to me that the Father has sent me. In other words, Jesus is basically saying, you want to know who I really am? You want to know who, who I really am? Just look at my miracles because they prove my deity. One of the essential questions that we have to ask and answer and wrestle with as we look at any of the gospels really is why did Jesus do these miracles? I think a lot of times as we're reading through the gospels, our our reaction to the miracles that we see him doing ends up being something along the lines of like, oh, that was so sweet of Jesus. Like, so kind of him at the wedding when they ran out of wine for him to do the thing and change the water. That was so nice of him. It was so nice of him to, to, to help out the, 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 the guy that, the, the, his son was sick and he helped him out there and he healed the lame guy, like so kind and thoughtful of Jesus. Yes, yes, Jesus is kind. Yes, he is thoughtful. Yes, he does care about those people. But that is not the primary point of his miracles. The primary point of his miracles was to prove his deity. 
That's what Jesus says in verse 36. He says, the very words that I am doing bear witness to me that the Father has sent me. They, they back up my claims about being God. They are exhibit A about my deity. And Peter said the same thing in Acts 2.22 as he was preaching on the day of Pentecost. Peter stands up and he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, a, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Again, Jesus' miracles prove Jesus. They confirm his deity. That was their point. So maybe you say, well, okay, I, I'll concede that was, that was the point, but then my, my follow-up question then is, were people getting the point? Were they understanding that that was what they were about? Well, in John 3, as Jesus was meeting with Nicodemus, one of the first things that Nicodemus said to Jesus was, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Why? For no one can do the signs that you're doing unless God is with him. So yeah, people were getting it. Or I should say at least the people who had softening hearts and opening eyes as God was working. Is that you? Is your heart soft towards the things that God is doing? Up until this point in the Gospel of John, we've seen Jesus turn water into wine. We've seen him know the complete life history of a, of a complete stranger. We've seen him heal a boy who was on his deathbed and make a man walk who had been lame for 38 years. And there will be many more miracles. We'll see him feed crowds of people with practically nothing. We'll see him raise the dead. We'll see him heal the blind. And those, those miracles are intended to create in us a response of wonder and worship to make us go, can, can you believe what Jesus is doing? Like, that's my God. Like, I'm speechless. This is, this is who he is. That's what he can do. He has all power. And yet, familiarity breeds contempt. And so we read these demonstrations of Jesus' power and deity in the Gospels as we're, as we're sitting there reading them. We're tempted to read through them or skim over them like we would skim over the stock numbers as they scroll across the bottom of the screen when we're watching the news. Like, like no big deal. I don't really understand it anyway. It's just, it's information. It's there. The primary application again here is for sure to believe Jesus' miracles witness about Jesus. There's no denying them but a secondary application for us this morning is to really let those miracles create in us a, a, a sense of wonder and worship that, that wells up inside of us and then, and then flows out in everything that we do. Let me just say right now, friends, no, no highlight real catch next week in the Super Bowl will, will be worth a fraction of a percentage of our wonder and awe compared to what we see Jesus doing in these miracles. These miracles confirm his deity and they, as they do, they're excused from the witness stand and Jesus calls one third witness. Witness number three, God's word proclaims Jesus. The God's word proclaims Jesus. Look back with me at verses 37 through 39. Jesus goes on and he says this, and the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. They're proclaiming Jesus. We won't spend a whole lot of time here because we'll come back to it in, in just a minute, but, but the point that Jesus is making here is that all of scripture proclaims him. Verse 39, he says, they bear witness about me. And let's just keep in mind who he's talking to as he says that. He's, he's talking to people who know scripture. 
He's talking to people who, who would have known that there are over 400 prophecies or foreshadowings of the Messiah in the Old Testament. There's, there's at least 117 in the law. There's at least 144 in the, the history and narrative books. And there's at least 153 in the prophets. And here in verse 39, Jesus says, all of that was proclaiming me. It was pointing to me. And this isn't the only time he says that. Matthew 11, Jesus says that long before John the Baptist showed up to point people to him, all the prophets in the law were prophesying about me. In other words, they were proclaiming Jesus. But in Luke chapter four, he went to the synagogue and he read from, from Isaiah where it says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are being oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He, he read that, that's scripture, that's Isaiah. And then he sat down and, and he said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, that scripture was proclaiming me. Then in Luke 24, Jesus appears to the two men after his resurrection and they're walking from Jerusalem to, to Emmaus and talking about all the things that have been going on and happening. And, and while they didn't recognize Jesus, it, it says that he walked with them and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, he showed these men from all of scripture how all of scripture was proclaiming him. Like, can you imagine being on that walk with Jesus? Listening to Jesus explain how all of scripture is pointing to him? For sure it would have been awesome. But the point is that God's word is trustworthy. It's an unimpeachable witness and it proclaims Jesus. The question is, do you know it? Again, the primary application for us for sure is to believe God's word about Jesus. It confirms his deity. He, he, he did fulfill all 400 plus prophecies. But the secondary application for us, my challenge for us this morning is, is not just to believe that God's word proclaims Jesus, but to put in the effort to learn how it points to Jesus. I hear people all the time saying things like, you know what, I, I get nervous when people ask me questions about Jesus in the Bible. I just, you know, I, I don't really know how to answer that. And I get that. Fully understandable. It, is, it can be extremely intimidating. But I, but I want to challenge you to learn, to grow, take steps towards learning how to understand the gift of God's word that you've been given. Like, think about it. There is nothing in any area of your life that you know today that you did not have to put forth some effort to learn. And so why would we think that understanding God's word would be any different? And yet, so, so often we're, we're too content to stay in the land of I thinks and I feels instead of putting in the effort to, to, to get to where we can point to God's word and confidently say, I know what this book says. I know how it points to Jesus. I know I can stand on this word. I know what it says. Oh, that God would grow us. And if you genuinely want to grow, please come. I would, nothing would bring me greater joy than to have a conversation with you. Put some resources in your hands, whether it's books, podcasts, even a free online course that can help you learn how to understand what God's word says for yourself. To do that, there's, there's no more important thing I could urge you towards to help you grow in your walk with Christ than learning how to understand God's word because God's word proclaims Jesus. It confirms his deity and as Jesus excuses his final witness from the witness stand, he, he turns his attention then from calling us to believe to cautioning us to beware. He's about to give us some warnings that we must consider with incredible gravity. Because what he's about to say is really serious. I just want to say right up front, as we look at what Jesus is about to say as he's confronting the religious leaders in the rest of the chapter, 
Some of us might get some toes stepped on, myself included. But matters of the soul are serious business. And so my request of you, my request of all of us, myself included, is as we look at Jesus' words here to ask ourselves, is this true of me? Is this describing me? Are these warning signs talking to me? Ask God to show you the reality of your heart because here's the second right response to Jesus' words this morning. It's to beware, quote unquote, seeking God and missing Jesus. To beware, quote unquote, seeking God and missing Jesus. See, Jesus has been clear about who he is. He's backed up his bold claims. His deity is confirmed and yet, it's still possible for us to quote unquote, seek God, to be about religious things, church things, even Christian things and still miss Jesus. And so Jesus moves us from from, from calling us to believe and offering us those three witnesses to confirm what he's calling us to believe. He moves from that to now cautioning us to beware and giving us three warning signs to help us consider whether or not we might be missing him. So here's warning sign number one of a person who's missing, seek, is missing Jesus. Warning sign number one is you quote unquote know the Bible, but you don't need Jesus. You quote unquote know the Bible, but you don't need Jesus. And I'll just point out now all of the, the things you'll see here are, are in quotes because the reality is that while, while it appears to be true, they're not true of a person who does not actually no, Jesus is not truly pursuing Jesus. And so we see warning sign number one in verses 39 and 40. So look what Jesus tells the religious leaders there. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is there that they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus has already made it clear that all of scripture proclaims him and Confirms his deity, but then in verse 40, he says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Why? Because they loved the Bible more than they loved the one to whom the Bible was pointing. In fact, they loved the Bible so much so that Jesus says they were searching and studying it as if they thought it would give them life. And no, that's not just Jesus like lobbing a grenade in their direction, trying to poke him in the eye with a pencil. Like this, this is true. This is what they actually believed. In fact, the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day uh, taught that studying the law would lead to acceptance by God. One prominent first century Jewish leader named Hillel, who actually lived in Jerusalem around the time of of Jesus' life, uh, taught that the more someone studied the law, the better life they would have here on earth. And if someone were to take the, the effort to memorize the law, they would gain a better life in eternity. So no, Jesus is not just making things up here. This is what these people actually believed. And while we would certainly never put it in those terms, we can run the risk of having the exact same mentality. The, the mentality that the, the, the Bible knowledge alone is an end goal. I know what you're thinking. Like, Andrew, you, you literally just said, hey, go learn how to study your Bibles. Yes, I did. Don't get ahead of me. See, so what these people were doing that Jesus is talking to was the equivalent of, of us pulling out a recipe and getting so excited about eggs and chopped parsley and olive oil and panko breadcrumbs and all the other ingredients and, and examining them and, and, and memorizing the recipe and getting all excited about that to the point where you then starve to death while proclaiming yourself to be a world-renowned chef because you couldn't understand or you refused to believe that the whole thing was pointing towards delicious chicken parmesan. 
Or it's like looking at the back of a baseball card and, and being so thrilled by a bunch of numbers that in the forms of, of batting averages and strikeouts and doubles and RBIs and, e, and ERAs without ever understanding how it all works together and, and without ever experiencing and enjoying the beautiful game that I love called baseball. That's what these people did and that's what we do when we quote unquote know the Bible but we don't need Jesus. All we end up being is big theological brains with unchanged lives. The goal of scripture is to point us to Jesus in a way that as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.15 is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The problem is that like the people that Jesus is talking to here, we're all too prone to approaching and even studying scripture with no need for Jesus whatsoever. And so we end up missing Jesus entirely. Let me explain. There's really, I think, two common purposes that we can approach scripture with that that lead us to missing Jesus. Those purposes that miss Jesus are approaching scripture for information and approaching scripture for action. Let me explain. Approaching scripture for information means you just want to know everything there is to know. You want to know stuff. You want to impress people with your knowledge. You want to read all the books and attend all the conferences and listen to all the podcasts. You want to win at Bible Jeopardy, but that's it. That's really the end goal for you. You, you thrive in the area of, of Bible and theological debate, but you have no interest in actually applying what God's word says to your life. In a lot of ways, that's what the religious leaders that Jesus is talking to here were doing. And listen, all of those things can be good things. Like I said, we, we should be pursuing knowledge. We should be pursuing those things. But if they're the end goal, they're not a good thing. Second wrong approach is approaching scripture for action. All that means is you just want to know what to do. Like, just tell me how to make my kids turn out. Tell me how to, to, to create a better marriage for myself. Tell me how to get ahead in life so that God's, God's happy with me and, and I get ahead at work and all that stuff. And quite honestly, some of us are stuck here. We're stuck in this rut of just approaching scripture for either information or action. And maybe because it's all we know how to do. Maybe because it's all we really want. And we're missing Jesus because of it. But see, then something amazing happens when you approach scripture for getting to Jesus instead of just for information or action. When you approach scripture for for Jesus, as he's been revealed in 2 Timothy 3.15 says, it really is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then that desire to know about God, the whole, the whole information thing becomes actually knowing Jesus, a relationship thing. Like you don't want to just know about your family, you want to know your family. It's about knowledge and relationship. And then as you continue to approach scripture for, for getting to Jesus and scripture does what the next couple of verses in 2 Timothy 3 says it will do, they, they will teach and reprove and correct and train you in righteousness so that you may be equipped and complete for every good work that desire for doing becomes a desire for being like Christ so that you would live like him as he's called you to live as one of his followers. And so again, to to sum all that up, when you approach scripture rightly to experience the life that Jesus is offering you by grace through faith in him, that desire to know about Jesus becomes actually knowing Jesus and that desire to to just do becomes a desire to be like your savior to have your whole life transformed so that someone would look like you and be like, man, that, that person, they've been with Jesus. They know Jesus. They're, they're living like Jesus. God's changed them. They're not perfect, but I see the difference. I see what God's doing in their lives. But that wasn't true of the religious leaders. 
They quote unquote knew their Bibles, but not really. They were all in on quote unquote seeking God, but they were missing Jesus. So what about you? When you open your Bibles, whether it's on a Sunday morning here or during the week at small group or at home by yourself, what are you after? Do you approach scripture with the attitude of, just get me to Jesus. Yes, I want to learn what to, what to know about him. I want to, I want to learn theology. I want to know, learn how to live out that, but just get me to Jesus. He's my savior. Is that how you approach him or are you just approaching with, just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to think. That's it. If it's the latter, friends, can I warn you? Be careful. You might be missing Jesus. He's the only one who can save you. He's the only one who can change you. But that's not the only warning sign that Jesus gives here. Here's warning sign number two of a person who's quote unquote seeking God, but missing Jesus. Warning sign number two is you love God, quote unquote, but you don't glorify Jesus. That you quote unquote love God, but you don't glorify Jesus. Give glory from Peter, what Jesus says in 41 through 44. He says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? When I say that these people were quote unquote seeking God, I mean they were serious about seeking God. They were all about that. Like I said, they quote unquote knew their Bibles and they were longing for their Messiah. The problem is the Messiah they were longing for was not the Messiah that they needed. And it was not the Messiah that came. And that's why they rejected Jesus. So what these people wanted was a, was a Messiah who would show up and liberate them from the Roman rule and, and restore them to their former national glory through strength and significance. What they did not want, what they did not expect, what they were not looking for was a Messiah who would come in order to liberate them from the rule of sin over their lives and restore them to a right relationship with their father in heaven, not through strength and significance, but through suffering and as their substitute on a cross. They wanted a Messiah who would be about their agenda, but four times in this passage that we're looking at this morning in verses 30, 36, 37, and 38, Jesus says that he was sent by God to do God's agenda. And so they rejected them, even though they quote unquote loved God truth was they didn't love God. They loved themselves. They were after their own glory. So as Jesus says in verse 43, when, when other people would come and portray themselves as potential rulers who would then deliver these people and give them what they wanted, make a lot of promises, these people would then accept and support them. But Jesus never made those promises. He didn't, he didn't say things like that. Instead, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. And he called his followers to deny themselves and to take up their own crosses and to follow him. To do his things in his way and not their things in their way because his is the kingdom and his is the power and his is the glory, not theirs and certainly not ours. See, the people that are actually followers of Jesus will glorify Jesus in and for and through everything. No matter what it is, they're going to be about, I want to glorify Jesus in my circumstances and what I'm facing, and what I'm learning and how he's growing me and how he's working me. It's all about Jesus. It's what he's doing. It's not about me. But that's not our natural wiring, is it? See, like the religious people that Jesus is talking to here, all too often, we'd, we'd much rather seek our own glory than the glory of God. 
And so we'll take our motives and our desires for things that, that, again, sure, may not necessarily be bad things in and of themselves. In fact, they might even be good things. We'll, we'll take those things and then, then baptize them in Christian language by saying things like, you know what, God's calling me to this. God's, it's a blessing. God's, God's giving, we'll, we'll baptize it with language like that and then set out to get what we want without ever giving consideration to what he's actually calling us to in his word. Because we want our glory, not his We'd much rather all too often have the immediate applause of man than the eternal approval of God. That's what these people were after. So they took their personal ambitions, their political ambitions and their desires for power and influence and success and they cloaked them in religious language about loving God and honoring God and then they set out to get their glory now. And the sad thing is that the glory that they were getting from themselves, from their little group of people, from the, the people that they were showing off to, and sure, they were getting glory from those people, but, the, but the, the sad thing is that that glory that they were getting in the immediate terms was blinding them to the glory that was standing right in front of them in the person of Jesus Christ. When we do this in any area of our lives, when we're after our own glory, the hard reality is that we might be setting ourselves up to missing Jesus. Again, these people, quote unquote, loved God, but not really, they, they loved themselves in their own glory. Harvest, don't make the same mistake they did. Don't miss Jesus because of the glory that the world is offering you. Don't allow the glory of the world to lure you away from the eternal glory that is right in front of us in the person of Jesus Christ. Don't miss Jesus. He has one final warning sign for us this morning of a person who's seeking God but missing him. Warning sign number three is that you quote unquote hope in religion but you don't believe Jesus. That you hope in religion but don't believe Jesus. One last time, would you look back at your Bibles with me at verses 45 through 47. Jesus says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you though, Moses on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus really gets to the heart of the matter in these last three verses. He points out that all of these people's hope was just in a bunch of religion. Instead of listening to Moses as he pointed to Jesus, their, their hope was in the law of Moses and their own ability to keep it. These, these people were so determined to keep the law that they would, they would create rules to stop them from breaking, rules that were designed to stop them from breaking the law. They were, they were serious. But Jesus told them, that plan will never work for you. In fact, not only will it not work, that plan will be your undoing. So back to where we started to use some legal terminology that that plan will not acquit you before God. It will, it will only indict you and prosecute you and convict you before him because of your own sinfulness. The law can never save anyone. All it can do is show us our need for a savior. And that's what Paul tells us in Romans chapter seven. Paul, Paul was one of these guys. He, he wasn't there, this was before him, but, but Paul was one of these guys. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew the law. He knew the scriptures. But at least, at least until he met Jesus on that road, he did not need Jesus. So he thought. But in Romans 7, 7 through 10, Paul says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. 
for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. In other words, ignorance is bliss. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandments came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. In other words, Paul is saying the law made it all clear. I thought I was good. I had it all together. I was religious. I knew my Bible. I, I, I loved God. I was seeking God. I did all the things. But then it made clear I was missing the point. I couldn't clean myself up. No matter how hard I tried, I would fall short. I, I couldn't earn God's acceptance. I couldn't avoid his anger against my sin. And, and friends, none of us can. We're all broken to the core. Maybe you're here this morning and because while, while you wouldn't necessarily put it this way, you're trying to either earn God's acceptance by being here or you're trying to, you're trying to avoid his anger. You're trying to, to, to tip the scales in your favor, hoping that eventually one day when you stand before God, he'll give you a pass. He'll say, you weren't that bad. You, you did things balanced out. That won't work. Isaiah 64 tells us that even our best efforts on our best day are like filthy rags in the eyes of a perfectly holy God. So when you're trying to earn God's favor or avoid his anger, you're, you're hoping in religion like the people in John chapter 5. Friends, religion is only skin deep. But the gospel gets to the heart. You, you need someone outside of you to clean you and change you to the very depths of your soul. And that person is Jesus. He came and he lived a perfect life that you could not live. And then, and then he, he, because he loves you, he, he went to the cross and he took the punishment for your sins and he died the death that you deserve. Then he rose from the grave three days later forever, defeating sin and death so that if you will admit your need for a savior and you will repent or turn from your sins and place your faith, your hope, your, your trust, put, put your everything in Jesus, that you don't miss Jesus, then he'll save you. He'll restore your relationship with God the Father and he'll enlist you in his kingdom and put you to work for his glory instead of yours. So don't miss Jesus. It's better than anything you can imagine. The opportunities that have you. If you're here this morning and you've never done that, I'd come talk to me, come talk to Pastor. Grab someone. Say, I want to know this Jesus. Don't, don't, don't let me miss Jesus because you can't save yourself. Some of you know that this past week or so has been about um, probably about the hardest week of parenting in, in our almost seven and a half years of parenting. And I know some of you right now are with older kids than ours are thinking, you just wait. It only gets, only gets better. But one night after all the craziness had died down and my own frustration and, and anger because I'm a sinner at, at, at our kids for all the things that they were doing uh, died down. I was sitting with one of our kids and I was asking God to just help me. Like, how do I... How do I get the gospel through to a, to a kid who's rebelling and angering and, and, and fighting back and doing all these things and then getting to a point where he's like, I don't want to do this anymore. And then five minutes later, he's doing the same thing again. How do, I'm like, just praying, God, how, how do I get this through? How do I get the gospel through to a kid? And I can't take credit for the words that, that I said next. God gave me the words, but I said, you know, you know how you get mad when one of your trucks gets broken? Can broken trucks fix themselves? And that child, smarter than he'd been acting all week, says, no. 
trucks can't fix themselves. Broken trucks need somebody else to fix them. And so I said, people, kids, adults, people are like broken trucks. They cannot fix themselves. And we're broken. And we need someone outside of us to come and come and fix us. We need Jesus. And I have no idea how much those words did or did not sink into that child I was talking to in the moment. I pray they did. But I do know that in that moment, I was hit afresh with the conviction of the Holy Spirit that even as an adult, even as a parent, even as a pastor, even as fill in the blank, that my own hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. That I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I have to stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Because I'm like a broken truck. And you're like a broken truck. We're all a bunch of broken trucks that need someone to fix us. And so friends, my question to you today is what will you do with Jesus? Maybe like BJ and his pearl, you've you've been just keeping Jesus kind of hidden under your bed as a good luck charm. Maybe like Jim and his copy of the Declaration of Independence, you just kind of keep him around for amusement from time to time when you when you want to bring him out and and show off a little bit. Maybe like Sue and her million dollar bowl, you just use you've just been using him to fill whatever purpose occurred to you in the moment. And if that's you this morning, can I just say you're missing out? Because you have in the person of Jesus Christ right in front of you a life-changing opportunity. And you have no idea the kind of transformation that can happen in your life if you will actually see him for who he is as he's revealed himself to be and value him for for who he is and understand and and allow yourself, allow him to, to change and transform your life instead of just playing around with him on the weekends. I pray that you will because he's more than able. In Jesus Christ, a life-changing opportunity is available to you. His deity is confirmed. We're looking at it. We've been looking at it. We'll keep looking at it. This is who Jesus is. Don't miss Jesus. We pray with me as the worship team comes. Father, thank you for your son. Help us to see him for who he is, to value him for all that he is and to surrender ourselves to him for all that he can do. Not ultimately for us, for our sake, but for for your glory. That we would just be beneficiaries of his work in our lives to change and transform us to fix us like the bunch of broken trucks that we are, to just fix us, God. Would you help us to see your son clearly for who he is? To believe all that your word has to say about him, all the witnesses that you've given us to say, this is my son, this is who he is, this is his deed. Would you help us to never lose sight of the wonder and all that is Jesus Christ, our savior? And that's not something we can do for ourselves. So God, reveal him to us. Give us that wonder and awe. 
break down our pride. Allow us to humble ourselves before him. Say, Jesus, have your way with me. Do in my life what you need to do. Rip out the idols, rip out the religion, rip out all the fake stuff. Change my life. Would you do that work in our hearts, God? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.